Good morning. <laughs> um, I hope you guys have had a good morning. Uh, mine started off pretty interestingly. Uh, I got here early to kind of practice before we got started. Um, so I got here at like 7.15. There was nobody in the building. Uh, I turned the lights on and walked in. I was walking down the hallway uh, where the minister's offices are. And then the security alarm, which I didn't know existed in this building, started going off. And it, I mean, it's like, a, it's like a government research facility. It's like intruder alert, intruder alert. And uh, so that's how my morning started. <laughs> um, uh, but I just want to thank you guys uh, for showing up. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm really excited to be here. There are a lot of you. Um, but uh, I think it'll be a good time. <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about Jason's sermon from two weeks ago, uh, the one about uh, mentoring and invitation. Uh, this is my third internship. And the thing about church internships is they really redefine your idea of what mentoring looks like. Uh, the first week or so is literally just you following about three steps behind the minister and doing whatever he asks you to do. Um, in my internships, I sp spent the first couple of days just feeling like a lost puppy. Um, but eventually, with the direction of the minister, you begin to find your role in the congregation and the space that you're meant to fill. Um, it's a process that has taught me a lot about faith and listening and community and humility. And so I was really excited when Jason asked me to talk about the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Um, because um, they have an incredible relationship, an incredible mentoring relationship. Timothy is Paul's most constant companion throughout his entire ministry. It's obvious by the longevity of their relationship and the way that we see Paul writing to Timothy <clears throat> that Paul sees something unique in this young man. They travel all over the place to share the gospel together, and eventually Paul even assigns Timothy to pastor over a church in Ephesus. But why? Why does Paul pick such a young man as a partner and a pastor? And I would contend it's because Paul is inspired by Timothy. And I have a theory on what it is that, is inspired, that inspires Paul. Um, John Eldridge wrote a really amazing book called Wild at Heart. Hopefully some of you have read it. Um, and this, this book explores the idea that God has placed a deep thirst for meaning and adventure within the hearts of humanity, and specifically in the hearts of men. Um, and this thirst shapes our thoughts, the use of our time, and our identity. This thirst is always present, but it is guiding and defining in our youth. And I think that Paul meets Timothy, and he encounters that thirst. He encounters that passion, and that's what inspires him. And that's why they decide together that they're going to share the adventure of the Christian life with one another. After all, that is the best way that we can characterize Christian life and even scripture, is a wild adventure. And that may seem like an odd thing for me to say, but I want you to think about some of the stories that pop up in your mind when you think about adventure. Uh, stories like the Avengers and Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> stories like Harry Potter and Braveheart and Forrest Gump and Top Gun and Hunger Games. The essential elements in these stories are things like journey and doubt and suspense, betrayal and exploration and hope and relationship, confusion, life, death, brokenness, insight and renewal. And I'm I'm here to tell you that, that those things exist in the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way through. The Bible is essentially the epic saga of the relationship between God and humanity since the beginning of time. <clears throat> Paul invites Timothy to allow the truths of that saga 
to encompass every single aspect of his life in 1 Timothy 4.12 when he writes, Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. So we're going to explore those five aspects of life that, that Paul writes to Timothy about today. And before we do that, I want to set up a little background for the book of 1 Timothy. Right, so obviously it's a letter from Paul to Timothy, who is, uh, Timothy is currently, when he, when he receives this, leading that church in Ephesus that I mentioned earlier. Uh, this letter tells us a lot about the mentor relationship between Paul and Timothy, uh, but it is primarily advice to Timothy and the rest of the church on how to combat the lives of the false teachers that are leading people away from God in Ephesus. We have to keep this purpose in mind as we explore these five aspects of life that Paul challenges Timothy to be an example in. In this verse, Paul implores Timothy to live out the gospel truth with his whole life. And he begins that by challenging him to live it out in speech. <clears throat> Our lives are full of speech, right? We chat with friends, we listen to politicians' speeches, and then others' commentary on those speeches. We listen to the lyrics of our favorite artists. We watch dramas full of dialogue. We listen to podcasts and sports commentators. But my question today is, how much of that speech is really true? How much of that speech is really valuable? How much of that speech gives us insight into who God is and who we are? Because I would contend that it's not a whole lot. That so much of it is just useless, insignificant filler. And it doesn't offer meaningful insight or revelation into our life. The speech, unfortunately, that fills our culture is manipulative much more than it is constructive. So in light of this, in light of the fact that the Ephesian culture was sharing this same issue, Paul challenges Timothy, and us today, I believe, to be intentional about articulating thoughts that reveal kingdom truths. To be intentional about articulating thoughts that reveal kingdom truths. We who know the truth have the ability to express those thoughts. And Paul identifies that as an essential component in working against Satan's deception in the world. In a world full of selfishness and ulterior motives, our speech should set us apart because it is full of truth. Paul wants Timothy to tell the foreigner that he has a home and a role within the church. He wants Timothy to tell the criminal of the scandalous grace of God. He wants Timothy's sermon and conversations to be full of, power, of the powerful promises and warnings of Scripture. He wants to hear of the power of Timothy's faithful prayers among the sick. He hopes that the words of this young pastor will bind the Ephesian Christians together as the family of God. This is the work of true speech in our culture, in our world. After all, speech is a gift from the Creator. I think it's incredible that our, that our Creator God has empowered each one of us to reflect His light into the lives of those around us. That we've been given these tools in our words to be able to illuminate and encourage and challenge one another. I think Proverbs does a really good job of exploring the power of words. In Proverbs 18.21, it says, Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Life and death. 
Furthermore, Genesis obviously is a powerful exploration of the power of words as we see our creator bring the world into existence through his speech. He decides to use the tool of that speech to bring the entire world into existence, but yet we're going to pretend like that doesn't matter and that doesn't affect the way that we interact with the world. Our speech is powerful, especially when it's full of truth. However, if Timothy and the Ephesian Christians and the American church really hoped to resist the false teachers of this world, we have to commit ourselves to speaking and living honestly. Our actions and our words are bound together inseparably. Which brings us to our second aspect of life. Life. The things that we claim with our words must be lived out through our actions. Otherwise, we're among the hypocrites <clears throat> and false teachers. We see this lived out in Jesus' ministry, right? Jesus didn't just teach. He didn't simply go around teaching the truth, but he acted on it. Jesus would teach about the freedom that comes to those who believe in him. <clears throat> and then he would free them from their physical sicknesses and forgive them of their spiritual sins. Jesus was not only a teacher, but a savior. The words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus are congruent. His actions preach his message alongside his words. And that's the example that's been laid out for us. So I've been a big brother since I was one year old. Uh, my little sister is a year and a half younger than me. Um, she's 19. It's Alyssa. She's not here. And then I have a 13-year-old sister named Olivia and a 10-year-old brother named Joshua. In that crowd, my hypocrisy or inconsistency would not go unnoticed. I remember this really fun game that me and my sister used to play at the dinner table uh, where we would tattle on each other for having our eyes open during the prayer. And my mom would always respond, well, how would you be able to see if your sister had her eyes open if your eyes were closed? And in a really simple, annoying way, my sister held me accountable when she tattled on me, and my mom kept me humble when I decided to tattle on my sister. They pushed me to commit myself to sincerely focus on God when I closed my eyes to pray. Because the fact is that the good word, by its very nature, cannot be contained to our mouths alone. It is persuasive and consuming. When it is truly embraced, it seeps into and fills every decision and every interaction in this adventure of our life. So as I was preparing this talk, I reached out to other young adults in my community and asked for their interpretation of that First Timothy's verse. Their responses influenced a lot of the content of this sermon. Um, but I want to share a few direct quotes with you guys because I think they really hit the nail on the head. First one's from my friend Roman. He says, live your life to glorify God in this way. In school, study hard so you may reflect the wisdom of God. In a career, show a great care and work ethic so you can reflect the care God put into creation. In your relationships with each other, love unendingly to help others learn how long, how wide, how high and deep is the love of Christ. Set an example for the believers in your life, all aspects of it, so that others may come to know the Lord through you. Another one of my friends, Josh, sent me this. Christ came and died so that we might have abundant life. When we give our lives over to him, we are given life in return. We live to live, not to die. So I think this should give us a hope and an energy that is evident in our lives. That we aren't dragging our feet or waiting for the weekend, but truly living with excited anticipation for the life we're given. 
The good word should influence every step along our path and guide us toward eternal life. The virtue by which we most fully experience the characteristics of that eternal life is the next entry in Paul's list. Love. Love, I think we can all agree, is the greatest adventure that this world offers us. And I want you to understand that I'm not talking about romantic love necessarily, but simply love for others and for God. Love is central to God's nature. It's central to Jesus' message. And it's a unifying theme throughout the entirety of Scripture. Love is the mission of this church, as is shown by these big purple signs that are everywhere and that are awesome. Uh, love is the mission of all churches across the world and across time. As I'm sure some of you have heard before, uh, there's four words in the Greek language that are all translated to love in English. But they all have a unique meaning that the English doesn't really grasp. Um, <clears throat> here, Paul uses the Greek word agape, which I put up there because I want to talk specifically about agape love. This word has a unique meaning that distinguishes it from the other three types of love. The first one being eros, love, uh, which is uh, mainly romantic love. Storge, love, which is mainly familial love. And philia, which is the warm, affectionate love that you have for those whom you're close to. But philia, sorry, but agape love, the love that Paul challenges Timothy to live out, is different. It's not an emotion. It is not something that you fall into suddenly or dramatically. Agape is tied up with the will. It inherently involves the mind. It is a decision. William Barclay tells us that it is a principle by which we deliberately live. A principle by which we deliberately live. It is unconquerable benevolence and invincible goodwill. We are called to intentional agape for all, including our enemies and those that society has deemed unlovable. In fact, that is the purpose and power of agape love, is that it reaches out to those people, those people who are different than us, and includes those people, the, the others, the them. Paul tells Timothy that in order to set an example for the believers, by allowing God's truth to encompass his life, he must choose love daily. No matter what someone is like, agape love pushes us to follow God by choosing to seek nothing, to seek nothing but their highest good. This agape love in the New Testament is identified as, as Christian love. Um, it's the defining characteristic of a truly Christian life. It's used about 250 times in the New Testament. And it never is just general average love. It is the love that we've been exploring so far. It is radical. It is exceptional. It is sacrificial love. It is adventurous and risky love. Through this action of loving others, though, we are promised, we experience our God, our God who John tell us, tells us is love, we experience him most intimately. However, because of the challenges of love and our own struggles and the own sin, our own sin that we have in this, in this life, this love is only attainable through relationship with Christ and the work of his sanctifying spirit in our life. 
Which brings us to the fourth item on our list. Faith. Set an example for the believers in faith. Paul encourages Timothy to confront the risks and challenges, the adventure of this life, with trust in the God he knows. With trust in the God we know. With trust in the God that you know. In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches the disciples to have a childlike faith. That's the standard that is held before them, to have a childlike faith. When I sent this verse to my friend Burgess, this is what came to his mind. Um, and this is the response that he sent me. As a child in the faith, it is incredibly important that we keep in mind what Jesus says about children in Matthew 18. We are called to have faith like the children. Why? I think because children do those five things mentioned in 1 Timothy 4 with honesty. Been they have not been adulterous with the world on any level and are pure in their pursuit of life, faith, love, speech, and purity. We are called to embody a childlike attitude towards Jesus. Burgess joins Paul in pushing us to lean in to Jesus, to look to him alone for direction and purpose, to trust him fully to provide for you as you set out on the incredible adventure that God has laid out for you and that your soul longs for, to trust him as you step out of the boat and onto the water where Jesus is, trust him to show up and to show off there. Burgess and Paul challenge us to practice pure faith. Which brings us to purity. Set an example for the believers in purity. When I looked up the definition for pure, I got not mixed or adulterated with any other substance or material. Uncontaminated. When something becomes impure, when it becomes dirty or spoiled or darkened, we seek to make it like it was before, to make it shiny, fresh, and new. This is true of t-shirts, it's true of couches, it's true of patios, it's true of marriages. I just thought these were really dramatic, so. It's just, the patio doesn't look like the same patio. Um, but we seek to make them the way they were before, is the point. We seek renewal. For humans, to seek purity is to live in a way that is near to the way that God created us to live. To seek purity is to live in a way that is near to the way that God created us to live. But unfortunately, that pursuit is complicated by the fact that Adam and Eve's decision to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3 contaminated our world. Sin was mixed into our understanding of God, creation, and ourselves. Many people call this event the fall, but I think it is just as helpful to call it the mixing or the contamination. To seek purity is to seek to return to the relationship between God and humanity that existed in the Garden of Eden. That is our task, that is our function in this world, is to work towards that renewal, to work towards that relationship the way it was before. Seek purity. To throw more Greek in here for you, I think it's significant that the, the word that Paul uses for purity here in Greek is hagnos, and that shares the same root as the Greek word for holy, hagios, hagnos and hagios. They're very similar words, they're very similar ideas, and I think that's powerful. 
There's this idea of purity and this idea of holiness, both tasks, both missions that we're meant to be a part of, meant to be fully involved into. Uh, they are so close together, even linguistically. We must seek to be clean, freshly windexed mirrors reflecting God's image. When it all comes down to it, I think that's, that's uh, the, the purity message that Paul offers here. We would be clean mirrors reflecting God's image. And I'm very aware, even as I speak about this, that the idea of purity makes some of us feel isolated. Satan has deceived us in believing that purity is beyond our grasp. Some virtue that we had long ago but now have lost forever. <coughs> you have followed along with this sermon so far and tried to apply these truths to your own adventure. But this last one just doesn't seem like it really applies to you. And I just wanted us all to stop for a second and identify that as the bold-faced lie that it is. The story of the Bible is a story of reconciliation. Our God is a God of decontamination and renewal. Jesus came to earth and lived and died and was resurrected so that we don't have to live under the oppression of our own sin. All of us. Forever. The price has been paid and God's love has conquered all impurity. And he reigns. His spirit dwells in our heart and moves in our life daily to continue that sanctifying work to make us more holy, more pure. In closing, I want to remind everyone here that yes, this verse is a huge, life-shaping challenge. That verse. But Paul writes it to Timothy as an encouragement. He wholeheartedly believes that Timothy is capable of living this out in his life. You may feel like people don't believe in you and your abilities. You may feel like your faith is irrelevant because you don't have enough experience or wisdom. You may feel like you cannot really make a difference in the church, or the world. But Paul believes you can. I believe you can. But most importantly, your God, your creator, your savior, believes that you can. So pursue your passion. Um, to the Timothys in the room, to the people who are relating with Timothy's story, to the, young people feeling at, to the young people figuring out what your role is in the church, pursue your passion wholeheartedly respond to the tugging on your heart. Seek real adventure and discovery. God created you to run after these things and encounter him in the process. He is excitedly waiting for you to invest into the incredible adventure of living out his truth in a hurting, confused world. That message was primarily for the Timothys. But to everyone else, I hope that God has spoke to you in this time. If you need guidance or prayers or forgiveness as you wrestle with Paul's words and seek to make them real in your life. If God is tugging on your heart. If you're tired of Satan's lies holding you down. If you need to respond to this message in any way, please do not hesitate to reach out to the elders that are around this room, that will be soon. They're here to love you and speak truth into your life. If you need to respond, please do so as we stand and sing.
This word is given in the name of Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord who makes all things new. He who has ears, let him hear.